Well, hey, good morning again. You still awake? Still with me? Good. Hey, it's Christmas. Merry Christmas. You excited about that? Did you know you have about 10 days? If you haven't, uh, if you haven't bought a gift yet and you need to, I uh, hope you have Amazon Prime. But even then, you're running out of time, man. So you better get with it. That's just my friendly uh, public service announcement to you, uh, husbands. That's who I'm talking to. But Merry Christmas. We're, listen, we're excited. We are, uh, we're celebrating Christmas together as a church family. And uh, we're doing it by looking at passages in the New Testament letters that describe Jesus, that describe this one who was born at Christmas. And this morning, we're going to be in Philippians chapter 2. Uh, the last couple of weeks, we've, we've been in Colossians last week. Today, we're in Philippians. I'm going to go ahead and read the passage starting in verse 5. Then I'm going to pray, and then we'll unpack it together. Let me... Let me read this passage. Uh, Paul writes this to the church in Philippi. He says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was born, or excuse me, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God of God the Father. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for your grace to us through him. And Lord, we thank you uh, that you sent him to earth and Jesus, that you uh, willingly came, that you humbled yourself, even as we just read, and emptied yourself in order to take the form of a servant, to be born as a human being so that you could live the life we couldn't and die the death we deserve to and make us like you giving us your righteousness. So teach us those things this morning. Help us to see that afresh, to see that when we celebrate Christmas, Jesus, we're celebrating you coming to rescue us. Uh, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you'd use me this morning, that you'd teach me and teach through me, and I pray against the enemy as servants, their works and effects. Uh, He would uh, cause us not to look to the truth of who Jesus is, but instead to be caught up in Uh, the cultural meaning of Christmas, but instead, Jesus, teach us to look to you. We pray all this, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Well, in this passage, Paul starts off in verse five. He says, have this mind among yourselves. And it's really, it's kind of impossible uh, to really unpack this passage without also looking at the four verses that precede it. Because what Paul's telling us to do here is he's telling us, to live humbly, that we should live with humility. We should, be, we should live humbly. So let me go back and look at what he says in these first four verses of Philippians chapter two. He says, so if, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, and when he's saying that, he's not saying if, like, oh, there might be or there might not be. He's really kind of saying since. And so he's saying, he's, think of it as if he was asking some questions. He's like, is, 
Is there any encouragement in Jesus, yes or no? Yes. Is, is there any comfort from his love, yes or no? Yes. Is, is there any participation with the Holy Spirit in our Christian life? Yeah. Is there, is there any affection or sympathy? Yeah. Well, then Paul says, well, if that's the case, then complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full, of, full accord and of one mind. What, what, he's, what he's writing to this church about is he's writing to them saying, hey, we want you guys to be, I want you guys to be unified. That's what God wants for you, is for you to be unified in Jesus Christ and around the truth of who Jesus Christ is and what he's done for us on the cross. He says, do nothing, verse three, from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. That's kind of the golden rule, isn't it? To love others like you love yourself. And then he goes on uh, in verse five, he's building on this when he says, so have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And, and what he's gonna go on to describe is that Jesus uh, was humble. And he's telling us corporately as a group of people to live humbly, to live humbly. So what does that mean? Because uh, humility is kind of one of those things that like once you think you have it, you don't anymore, right? You, you, you'll figure that out later. Just think about that for a while. But once you have it and you, you think you have it, you really don't anymore. So, but what is, what is biblical humility? Well, uh, humility, that word, our English word anyway, shares the same root word as the word human. And it's a Latin word that means to know your place to know your place. True humility, I'm gonna argue, is knowing your place. Well, what's your place? Well, as a, as a human being, your place is above lower creation, so above all of creation, above the animals, you're superior, you and I are superior to all of that. However, we're below God, aren't we? So we're above lower creation, but below God. That's our place on, on the grand scheme of things. And so we're, we're not to put ourselves in the place of God and, and make things in our lives an idol, but we're supposed to know our place, that we're here to serve God and care for creation. That's, that's why we're here. Now, to know your place, it's vitally important you know your place to live humbly. Paul says that this is the mind you should have, and it's yours in Christ Jesus. You know, uh, I came across an illustration this week, or a story, I should say. Do you remember Tim Russert? He used to be on NBC. Tim Russert told the story about getting to go see John Paul II. And Tim Russert was a devout Catholic. Uh, he had been an altar boy as, uh, when he was growing up, and he was thrilled at this opportunity. And very few people get the opportunity, really, to have a one-on-one -on -one private audience with the Pope. And Tim got this opportunity. He said, here's how he describes it. He says, I'll never forget it. I was there to convince his holiness that it was in his interest to appear on the Today Show. But my thoughts soon turned away from NBC's rating toward the idea of salvation. And when I saw him, immediately I cried out, bless me. So he put his arm around my shoulders and whispered, you are the one called Timothy, the man from NBC, correct? And he said, I am, that's me. They tell me you're a very important man. Taken aback, I said, uh, well, there are only two of us in this room and I'm certainly a distant second. The Pope looked at me and he said, right. <laughs> and then he goes on and he says, 
It's always good to know your place. That's humility. Humility is knowing your place. It's knowing where you fit. So, so humility in terms of our relationships with one another means that I know that, that I'm a child of God, but so are you. And so that I'm to, to love Jesus, to serve him. And part of the ways I do that is by serving you because I'm, I'm no better than you. I'm no less than you, but we're in this together, amen? And so to know my place is to serve with a Christ-like mind. Now, this is gonna get interesting when we get on to see more of how Paul describes Jesus because Jesus is fully God. And yet, what does he do? He steps down into our place. He stoops low into our place. But humility is to know your place. And you see this throughout scripture. This was really the New Testament definition and the biblical definition. And in Romans 12, verse three, it says, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to, but to think with sober judgment to know your place. Each according to the measure of faith God has assigned. He says, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Live in harmony with one another. Don't be haughty or proud, but associate with the lowly and humble. Never be wise in your own sight. And, and, and you see Peter write about it too. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, he may exalt you. Now, a lot of times when we teach humility, and especially we read that passage, Peter says to humble yourself, we think, well, I need to make myself low, right? Why is that? Because our default tends to be pride, to where we think way too much of ourselves. But we ought to think, like Paul said, with sober judgment, to know our place. And so that means that I don't... Uh, belittle myself and just think negatively about myself all the time, but that I also don't think with an ego, a, a, a huge ego about myself, both of those are pride. Humility is to know that I'm below God, I'm above lower creation, I'm here to love God and serve others, and that's my joy. Amen? Now, if you're a Christian, here's your place. See, that's the general place of all people, below God, above creation, but if you're a Christian, your place is in Jesus Christ. You are in Christ. That's your place. That's your identity. That's your station in life. And being in Jesus Christ means a handful of things. It means that uh, while you may still sin, your primary identity is no longer as a sinner, but as a saint. While you may have done things that, that, that in sin stained your life, uh, you are no longer primarily stained and dirty, but clean and new. You uh, may have been, Ephesians chapter 2 says, a child of God's wrath, but because of repenting and turning to Jesus Christ, you're now his beloved child, his beloved son and daughter. You have a brand new identity and your place is in Christ. That's why Paul says, see, uh, you should have this mind among yourselves, which, what's he say after that? which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now that, uh, that, that statement blows me away. To think, to think with humility and love towards other people, that, that I feel like a lot of times I have to work for that mindset. Would you agree with that? And Paul says, no, 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 no. That's, that's incredibly profound. You actually have that. Lay hold of it in Christ. In other words, know your identity, know who you are and live that out.
Now, with, with that uh, groundwork laid, let's go on into the rest of this passage where Paul describes who Jesus is, this one who's born at Christmas. He says, Has, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then uh, he goes on and he says this. Who, talking about Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, there's a lot there to unpack here about who Jesus is. Now, one of the things here Paul's saying is that Jesus is the God-man. He's the God-man, okay? Can you just say that with me? Say God-man. And not like just, just one word there, God-man. That's who Jesus Christ is. That's his essence. That's his very nature. And Paul tells us both of these things in this passage. You're going to get a little Christology here this morning. That's the theology of who Jesus is, okay? And so, so Paul tells us that, uh, first off, he says, Jesus, though he was in the form of God. In other words, what he's saying when he says form, he's not talking like, um, like he morphed into this and then he transitioned into this. And by form, what he means here, and you'll see it again later, he actually means in essence or in, some of your translations may even think better say, in nature, God. His very nature is deity. Do you get that? So what does that mean? So like every other part of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, they're all, they all share the same attributes. So what are some attributes that you know of God? When you think of God, what are some attributes you think of? Give me one. Emotion. He's, he's zealous for his glory, right? And, and jealous for his glory as well. What else? Omniscience, he's all-knowing, he's holy, he's perfect, he's, he's all-powerful, he's fill-in-the-blank, he's, he's love personified and perfect, right? That's every one of those attributes you can apply to the Father, to the Spirit, and to Jesus Christ. Do you know another one? Omnipresent, he, yeah. Eternal, even I would add to that as well. Jesus is eternal, I think I've said this a couple weeks in a row, but when, when, I, when I became a Christian, when I got into high school, I had, I had grown up going to church, learning all these things about who Jesus is, memorizing creeds and what does this mean and what does it not mean and blah, blah, blah. And all good stuff, so I shouldn't say blah, blah, blah. It was good stuff, but I didn't, it didn't mean anything to me at that time. And so, so once I started to understand theology and understand who Jesus was, and I understood the fact that he didn't start existing at Christmas, but he always existed and simply put on his humanity at Christmas my mind was blown. Like Jesus always was, always is. That's why when, when he describes himself in John chapter eight, I believe, and he says, uh, and they ask him who is about him, he says, and, and I am. And that was the end of the sentence. Like he didn't have to fill anything else in. He, he's always existed. He's eternal. He's fully God. Every attribute that you would apply to to the deity of the Father is true of the deity of the Son. As we saw last week, he's the image of the invisible God. Hebrews chapter 1 says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. 
He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. In fact, listen to some of the things that the writer of Hebrews says Jesus does. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purifications for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Loved ones, Jesus is fully God. He's fully God. See, uh, Paul says uh, he, he, he was in the form of God, yet he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, again, if you don't understand that Jesus was deity, that he's fully God, he's eternally existed, you read that, and our English translation makes it seem like, oh, so he's grasping to become God. That's what every other religion teaches. That somehow, if you're good enough as a man or as a woman, you can become godlike, right? And you'll get a planet all your own and all kinds of other crazy stuff that, that somehow, if you're good enough, you become God. But Christianity teaches, no, 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 the exact opposite. God became man. He stepped down into creation and became a man. And so when it says he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, in other words, he didn't count it as something to hold on to or to cling to or to reach for. In his life on this earth, Jesus Christ, born of a woman, born taking the form of a servant, we read here in the next verse, uh, what I would say is that Jesus lived his life in his full humanity. Now, have you ever taken time to really think about the humanity of Jesus Christ? Because he is fully God, but he's also fully man. So did Jesus ever make a mistake growing up? Mistake's not necessarily sin. He never sinned. But I'm guessing if he hung out with his dad, who was a carpenter, at some point he probably smashed his thumb with a hammer. Except he didn't say what you and I might think when we do that. Right? He didn't even think it. He never sinned. He made mistakes. In fact, Luke tells us that he grew in wisdom and in stature. Think about Jesus' humanity. You know, the, the Bible speaks to it often. Um, the word became flesh, John 1.14 says. He was born. We, we remember at Christmas, Luke 2.7. He grew, Luke tells us, in 2.40 and 52. He got tired, John tells us in chapter 4. He got thirsty and hungry he became physically weak. He died. He had a real human body after his resurrection. He ate breakfast with the disciples. He was fully and is fully human. He added humanity to his deity. And, and not, only, uh, not only his body, but how about his, his heart? When Jesus heard the centurion's words of faith, it says he marveled. He had human emotion. His soul became very sorrowful even to death. He was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled at Lazarus' death. He was fully human, except his humanity is perfect. He never sinned. Think about that. You can't even think about that because you and I can't comprehend it because we're so sinful. By nature, we're children of God's wrath. But until Jesus comes and dies as a one-for-one -one substitute in our place on the cross, then he takes our sin on him. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. So then when, when, when we put our faith in him, guess what happens? His righteousness is credited to our account. 
And so now my identity, my place, my humility, my place as a Christian is in Christ. I'm, I'm veiled in Christ so that when the Father sees me, do you know who he sees? He sees the works and the righteousness and the purity of Jesus Christ of his own son because I'm adopted into his family. For, for some of you, you need to really live into that identity, live into that truth. That's who you are. Even though you may have messed up, even though you continue to mess up, guess what? That doesn't negate the fact that Jesus lived a perfect life, died in your place on the cross and gave you his righteousness. He credited it to you. The big theological word that you'll never use in real life is imputed righteousness. He's he's put it on you and in you. That's, That's who you are in the Father's eyes now. And that's because of Jesus' humanity. See, he was fully God, but he's also fully man, so he can be our perfect substitute. Paul continues. He says he emptied him. He he, he did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped. So by the way, what that means is that Jesus, in his life, when he does his miracles, by the way, he does them, I believe, by the power of the Holy Spirit working perfectly through him. Not out of his deity, but the Holy Spirit working through his humanity. In other words, he never pulls out his God card. Now he claims to be God, because he is, but he emptied himself, as we're gonna see in this next verse. Verse seven, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form and human nature, human essence, completely human. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Jesus, in in humbling himself, his place is as deity, but by putting on flesh, he becomes a man and he humbles himself. He stoops low to be like us so that we can become like him. That's the gospel. And then he dies on our place, in our place on the cross. In fact, he was obedient perfectly, even to the point of death. I don't know about you, but like to be obedient to the point of death, I struggle sometimes to be obedient to the point of the next five minutes, how about you? And he does it to his death and not, and, and even his death, even death on a cross, Paul writes. In other words, a humiliating death. And by the way, he lived and continues to live with humility knowing his place. See, here's, here's some of Jesus' own statements. He says, even as the son of man, that was his favorite term for himself out of Daniel, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He came to serve. He rose from supper. John chapter 13 might be the greatest example of this. He laid aside his outer garments, taking a towel. He tied it around his waist. Now, do you, do you know what that, that event is? That's Passover, the night before Jesus' death on the cross. Now, now come with me here to that Let's fast forward from Jesus' birth to right before his death. He'd spent three years with these guys, doing ministry with them, teaching them, teaching in front of them, uh, building into them. They get to the night of the Passover, the night before he's gonna end up being crucified on the cross. They find a room, they get into the room. Everybody's sitting there. And and, in the days leading up to this, there was a little bit of a conflict among some of the disciples about who was the greatest. To the point that um, some of them even got their mom involved. Right to where their, their mom made an appeal for him to find out who's the greatest. And, and leading up to this, and so you would imagine that sitting around the table that evening 
And by the way, they would have been lounging around the table. So think of a table like a coffee table in your house with, with big uh, cushions around it and them leaning in on one elbow and kind of eating with the other hand, their feet extended out. Uh, there, was the, there was this tension of who's the greatest among them? Because they, they really, their understanding of what was gonna happen was that Jesus was about to set up his kingdom and they think, okay, well then I want my spot in this kingdom. They didn't understand that he was actually gonna die first and he's gonna come back later to do all that. And, and so there's this tension among them, right? So much so that they forgot everything Jesus had ever taught them or said to the effect of being a servant and loving others and humbling themselves. And so as they get into the room, they, they all had just kind of dirty, nasty feet leaning on the table and no one was willing to humble themselves and wash their feet, wash the feet of everyone else because that's the job of a servant. And these guys are thinking, Jesus is gonna set up his kingdom, so I'm gonna be uh, in, in just a position of power, right? So who does it? Jesus does. The one they were expecting to be the king, because he is the king, he rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments. Since no one else would do it, he took a towel, tied it around his waist, and he goes through and begins to wash the feet of everyone at the table. Can you imagine how their spirits must have shrunk up a little bit? Going, wow. I'm sitting here arguing in my mind of whether I'm the greatest or not, and the one who I'm going to serve under is now serving me. And at the end, he says, you call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If then, he says, your Lord and teacher, I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. See, Jesus, the king, the God-man, emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. As Paul writes to the Corinthians, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake and my sake he became poor, that you by his poverty might become rich. See, we, we should live humbly then as Jesus, the God-man, lived. And he's the king of glory. We've talked a little bit about his humanity. Let's, let's, let's go back now and remember that this little child born in incredible vulnerability is the king of glory. Psalm, 4, Psalm 24 is the whole psalm about who is this king of glory. It's Jesus Christ. He is the king of glory. Now, look what Paul writes, these last three verses in our passage this morning. He says, therefore, God has highly, because of his humility, because of him knowing his place, God has highly exalted him, exalted Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, as we like to say, it's all about Jesus. It's all about him. And in fact, uh, the Father is the one who's set that up, that it's all about Jesus. See, it, one thing I kind of skipped over because it's hard to understand. If, if you're new as a Christian or you're not a Christian and you're new this morning, you're going, okay, you're talking about, it sounds like you're talking about three gods, Josh, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, right? 
Well, there's one God in three persons. Now, this is hard to grasp. It's known as the Trinity, doctrinally, okay? And in the Trinity, you have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All three are equally God. All are one God. And they exist in loving relationship and community with themselves. Now, these aren't exact ways to understand it, but one way you might think of it um, is like, the, like an egg. You've got the shell and you've got the white and you've got the yolk. It's one egg and there's three distinct parts to it, right? There's three distinct persons in the Godhead. Now, the, the way that that analogy breaks down is that the egg isn't equal to the, or the shell isn't equal to the yolk and isn't equal to the egg white, right? But the father is equal to the son and the son's equal to the spirit. And, and in the Trinity, in this relationship, the, the father is the head and the spirit uh, serves the son and the son submits to the father. But the father, what we're gonna see here is he delights to actually exalt his son. He delights to, to exalt his son. Now, let's look at this. Here's what Paul writes. Therefore, God is highly exalted him, meaning the father is highly exalted, the son, Jesus Christ. Well, how high has he exalted him? Well, he's bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Guess what? Guess how many names that means? All of them. In other words, in his, in his, uh, in his rank, in his authority, in his preeminence, in everything, Jesus is above everyone else. That's what the father's saying. That's what Paul's saying. The father bestowed on him a name above every other name. Now, you ever been somewhere where like, uh, if you just mentioned somebody's name, I never have been, but like you can get in. I've never had that, that opportunity because I don't know any, uh, I, I know all you guys, which is good, but maybe you're holding out on me. I, I've never been able like to just say somebody's name and get in, right? Have you ever had that experience? But see, there's a name that's greater than even that name, as great as that name might be, it's, it's the name of Jesus, because the Father's bestowed on him the name that's above every name. So that, so that, why did he do that? So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. In other words, that everyone would know their place and bow in humility before the King of glory. And who's the King? Jesus. And, and just in case... Uh, you weren't convinced, Paul goes on and he says, uh, every, every knee, um, those in heaven, those above, higher principalities and authorities, those on earth, all of us, those under the earth, that could either mean those who have died or, or the demonic realm. Everyone, everything will bow before the authority and majesty and glory of Jesus Christ. This one who's born as a helpless infant taking on the form of a servant at Christmas. Again, right? Like it's God who's put on flesh because he loves you, because he loves me. Look at what else about Jesus. And every tongue, verse 11, will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Every tongue will confess that, who's Lord? Jesus. Why? Because he is. And it's the Father's design that everyone would confess Jesus is Lord. And I've told you, in heaven, I think the, the one person of the deity, of the Trinity that we'll see is Jesus Christ. Maybe I'm wrong. I'm not gonna die for that. But that's, that's my understanding looking at scripture is that Jesus is, because when I look at Jesus, Jesus says, if you see me, you've seen the Father. 
It's all about Jesus, friends. It's all about Jesus. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Now, here's my challenge to you this morning as you head into Christmas. Here, you know, you, you hear about, oh, the little baby Jesus in the manger, and maybe you even got a nativity scene, and maybe you'll drive past some even on your way home today. I don't know. You'll, you'll probably watch some movies where you'll see the, the nativity, or you'll, you'll watch something about Jesus. Listen, that little child, maybe you have a little child, and you'll look at them and, and think of this today. When Jesus was born, that little child, it was the king of glory putting on flesh to, so that he would live to be obedient even unto death, death on a cross, to die in your place and my place so that whoever would simply believe in him would be saved. And Paul tells us at the end that, listen, God has bestowed on him a name that's above every other name and highly exalted Jesus Christ because, so that at his, at his name, every knee will bow and every tongue confess. Listen. If you haven't become a Christian yet, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day where you can choose to confess Jesus Christ as Lord. And I would just plead with you, do that now while you have the opportunity, while you have breath. Because every person in this room one day will bow a knee and will confess him as Lord. I would urge you to do that of your own volition now rather than do it later, having neglected him during your life on this earth. Donald Trump, Saddam Hussein, Osama bin Laden, Barack Obama, George W. Bush, Every leader, every person, Kobe Bryant, Michael Jordan, LeBron James, King James, he's gonna bow his knee before the king of glory. Every tongue will confess Jesus as Lord, including your tongue and this tongue. Do it now of your own volition, friends. He was born taking the form of a servant so that he would live an obedient life, even unto death, death on a cross, in your place and in my place. All you have to do is believe. And Paul tells us in Romans chapter 10 that whoever would believe in their heart and confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord, they will be saved. Amen? Amen. Let me pray. We're gonna sing and call it a morning. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for your grace to us through him. Father, I pray uh, this morning, especially for those maybe who are uh, hearing your word and um, maybe have never of, of their own volition confessed Jesus, confessed you as king, confessed you as Lord. Listen, if that's you, it's, it's really simple. It's not about you uh, cleaning yourself up or making yourself right or doing enough good things to be acceptable to God. That's what Jesus did for you. See, he took on the form of a servant and he did that. He put on flesh so that, uh, that he could be the one to, to live the perfect life in your place and that he could make you clean and give you his righteousness. Your only responsibility is to simply believe and confess him as Lord. And if you would simply believe in your heart, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, in other words, put your faith in him, say, Lord, I'm a sinner, I need a savior, I realize Jesus is him, 
you will be saved. Father, uh, we love you. We thank you for Jesus. And we pray all of this then through him. Amen.